Hi everyone, this is Holly Gilbert Stowell, your host of Security Management Highlights. Thanks for tuning in to this bonus episode and be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. When a terror attack occurs, there are certain behavioral and emotional responses that can be anticipated in the victims. Being able to effectively manage these responses is important for security practitioners when planning for the worst. For the July podcast, I spoke to Steve Cremando, Principal at Behavioral Science Applications, about his article on emotional responses to terror attacks. Here is the full version of our conversation. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Holly. Appreciate the chance to, uh, to speak to you. Tell us a little bit more about the origins of your article. Why is it so important to consider the psychological ramifications of a terror attack? Well, it's very important because often planners can can think about the human factors or the psychological impact almost as a secondary concern to physical security and and the damage done by a terrorist attack. And you have to understand the nature of terrorism really is twofold. There's the strategy and the tactics. And the strategy basically is psychological. The real tool of the terrorist, the ultimate tool of the terrorist, for example, wouldn't be something as exotic as chemical, biological, or radiological weapons, the weapon is always psychological. It's creating and manipulating levels of fear for a strategic goal. And the type of fear that the terrorist deals in is referred to as ambient fear. And ambient fear is that fear that's always running in the background while we're waiting for the next shoe to drop. That's really how fear works optimally from the terrorist standpoint. And that's kind of the position that we are in worldwide today is knowing that there will always be another attack. So the tactics, bombing, shooting, kidnapping, vehicular attacks, they play into this and they play into it especially with the the idea that the attacks can seem random. There's nothing random about them. If we look at how the bombings of the commuter trains in Spain occurred just days before their elections, changing the outcome of the elections several years ago, we saw the same sort of thing in terms of two back-to-back terrorist attacks in the UK and radical changes in the outcome of their elections. So it's important to understand that when we think about the strategy of terrorism, psychology is actually the most important ingredient in the mix. So what are the different types of psychological responses that there can be to a terror attack? I guess the best way to phrase this are there are behavioral and there are emotional considerations. And I know that sounds nearly identical. But in this context, when we speak about the behavioral considerations, we're talking really about what people do and don't do during and immediately after some sort of terrorist attack. And obviously, what people do and don't do can make them part of the solution or make them part of the problem. There is the consideration from the practitioner's standpoint of really understanding, in a very general way, human behavior in order to make sure that emergency plans and procedures and even exercises are based on accurate behavioral assumptions. And when we think about the emotional component, that does start to spill more into the mental health aspect, ranging from, you know, what you and I would consider as normal reactions normal people would have to abnormal events, the shock, the horror, the the grief, the sadness of, of the situation, actually ranging upstream to more serious mental health consequences that may touch on diagnostic sort of situations, things like post-traumatic stress disorder, acute stress disorder, or other diagnosable sorts of mental health conditions that can flow out of exposure 
to a serious and traumatic situation. How does conventional terrorism differ from unconventional terrorism? And how does the emotional and psychological response of the victim vary based on which type the attackers use? Yeah, there's a couple of very important considerations for practitioners, and, and I'll try to touch on three of them very quickly. The first is the concept of the behavioral footprint. When we speak about the behavioral footprint, we know that in terrorist events, you know, when the event has bookends, we clearly know when it starts, when it stops, if you're in or out. And that's more obvious in conventional terrorism, which are events like bombing, shooting, kidnapping, and the vehicular attacks I mentioned earlier, as opposed to unconventional terrorism, which would be more those exotic sorts of weapons, such as chemical, biological, radiological weapons, and so forth. When people do not have a clear sense of those parameters, if they're in or they're out, we end up with a much larger behavioral footprint, the concept I mentioned, which is the ratio of psychological casualties to medical casualties. And really the best way to explain this is two very quick examples. One was the sarin nerve gas attack in the Tokyo subway of 1995, which produced a four to one ratio of behavioral casualties or psychological casualties to medical casualties, meaning that for every one person truly exposed to the sarin gas, running to EMS, running to hospitals for care, four times that number also showed up seeking care with gas exposure symptoms, although they had never been anywhere near the gas. So there's this concept of sometimes the worried well or the walking well, and sometimes we think about that as being psychosomatic. More accurately, the term is psychogenic, meaning kind of stress-induced or psychologically induced. And then not a terrorist event, but a very significant event was an accidental release of cesium-137 in Guiana, Brazil in September of 1987, which produced a 500 to one ratio of psychological casualties to medical casualties and completely overwhelmed that government's ability to manage that event. So there's a tremendous difference during the immediate response when it is conventional versus unconventional. It also matters in the long-term recovery because when we have an act of conventional terrorism, the behavioral and the psychological response is fairly immediate. It's very acute. It tends to be primarily what we would consider classic or typical traumatic stress reactions, such as arousal. People are wired, they're jumpy, they're hyper. Avoidance, people don't want to be reminded of the event. It's just too unpleasant. And re-experiencing, and that may be in dreams and nightmares and flashbacks and in intrusive thoughts and images, things of that nature. But when we have unconventional terrorism and we lack those bookends, people don't know when it starts and stops, and it's an event where you can't see, smell, hear, or taste a hazard, something like a biological agent or a chemical agent, we get a very different reaction, and the reaction is primarily somatic. It manifests itself as physical symptoms, and it tends to be much more chronic. Those reactions tend to linger for months and years, much, much longer than those conventional terrorist strikes. Steve, what are some of the other factors you write about that can affect the behavioral response of victims? Well, uh, there's a, a few things for, for security professionals can, to consider, and that's really about how we respond and actually how we prepare to respond, and that may be what we do in our plans, our policies, and in our exercises, and so forth. And I'd really like to focus on three elements, and believe it or not, these core concepts of how we respond in the immediate wake of a violent event to, to manage the emotional consequences, these concepts actually go back 100 years. They're attributed to an army psychologist, T.W. Solomon, in 1917. And Solomon had said, based on his observation, the three most important aspects of, of effective response, he summarized with the acronym PIE. And PIE, P-I-E, represents proximity, immediacy, and expectancy. 
And proximity was go to those witnesses, those victims, those survivors. Go directly to them. Don't wait for them to come looking for assistance. And what we know from a psychological standpoint is in the wake of some sort of violent event, most people don't go looking for mental health support, and actually most people reject it when it's offered to it. So we have to make a concerted effort as organizations and security professionals to make sure we initiate and have mechanisms in place to get care directly to those victims and their witnesses. The I in PI was for immediacy, and that meant essentially, you know, going sooner was better than going later. Now, that's 1917. Today in our era, we have much more advanced neuroimaging. We could look at things like fMRIs and see brain function and action. And one of the things we know through advanced imaging is there's a very critical window of time in the first hours and the first days to get or at least initiate that rapid emotional or psychological support. So P, we go, we go directly to people. I, we go immediately to people. And E is we go with a sense of expectancy. And what we mean by expectancy is we know the vast majority of people will recover in their own time and on their own terms and not necessarily go on to be psychologically damaged goods. But none of this happens accidentally, which means built into our response plans for any kind of traumatic event, you know, whether it be a natural disaster, technological disaster, or an act of terrorism, which is a disaster of human intention, we really have to make sure that we have those mechanisms in place to meet those three sort of touchstones. Proximity, we can go right to the victims. I go quickly and we can go with that sense of hopefulness. And you know what? Depending on the nature of the event, it may not be that we can get employee assistance personnel or other external resources very quickly to the scene of a terrorist strike. And there's a lot of other barriers too. So one of the ways that organizations can think proactively about this is starting to develop some psychological first aid capacity within their organizations. Because, for example, during something like an active shooter event or the immediate wake of a vehicular attack, it's a crime scene. We're not going to get counselors and other resources there very quickly. There are going to be many barriers, such as police taking statements or not releasing people quickly to receive those levels of help. So those of us who are on site, which may be coworkers and colleagues, may be the very best source of immediate psychological support. And the concept with psychological first aid is just like basic medical first aid. Someone does not have to be a medical professional to know the very basics of of first aid, and someone does not need to be a mental health professional in any way to understand and apply the very basics of psychological first aid. It's really meant to be a neighbor helps neighbor approach or, or coworker helps coworker approach. Yes, and that's a great segue into my next question. You write that we can observe different social responses among people in the community. Of course, like you just talked about, we hope that neighbor helps neighbor. What are some of the other possible social scenarios that security practitioners should be aware of? Holly, this actually goes back a little bit to where we were earlier with um, the difference between conventional and unconventional terrorism. I just want to touch base on that for a second as we lead into these different community responses. And that's to say that practitioners should take care that we do not overly generalize that in every traumatic event or every violent event, people will always have the same responses. We know the response to events varies greatly across a timeline. We don't react in the same way in hour one as we do in day one, week one, month one, and year one. And we don't react the same way 
to every event. So we don't react to the same way to fire, flood, and earthquake as we do to a shooting event or we do to a disease outbreak. Now, to your point specifically or your question, we can really kind of conceptualize the, the community response. And community might be your neighborhood, but it also may be your work environment, maybe your coworkers, and maybe the whole company. We can conceptualize that in three broad strokes, which I'll refer to as type one, two, and three behavioral responses. The most common, the one that emergency managers count on, is actually the neighbor helps neighbor response. So if you can imagine a bad storm coming through, you know, your area tonight and some trees are down and wires are down and your neighbor's home has been damaged, we may feel pretty badly for them and, I don't know, want to bake them a casserole and bring it down the street. We want to reach out and help our neighbor. That's the most common and that's the most likely. And it's one that's critically important to us in emergency response. But if we introduce fear into the equation, let's say, for example, the problem down the street tonight is not that your neighbor's home was damaged by a storm, but someone's home sick with a highly contagious disease. Man, you're probably going to forget all about the casserole, right? Now you have a realistic concern that you can't reach out to your neighbor to help because you may get sick, you may get exposed and bring it home to your family. And so that fear starts to erode that community cohesion, which is so critical in neighborhoods, in offices, and so forth. So fear starts to interrupt that natural helping process. And in the worst case situation, fear becomes so acute that it actually creates a neighbor competes with neighbor sort of response. We refer to that as a type three reaction in which people now compete for the last food or gas or water or medicines, uh, or maybe the last chance, what they perceive, to get out of the affected area. So this is where panic comes in. And panic is actually unlikely in most disasters, but panic, which is competition, is actually based in two foreseeable dynamics, perception of limited opportunity for escape and perception of limited availability of critical supplies. And those are the kind of things that will turn people against each other rather than helping. And that's when fear is so acute that it moves beyond just the neighbor fears neighbor response to now an actual neighbor competes with neighbor for survival response. So those are some of the ways that communities, whether they're in town or in an office building, those are some of the ways that larger communities react to these kinds of events. Just to come full circle, it's just important for every security professional to understand that the psychological aspects of terrorism should not be an afterthought. Psychology is at the very core of every terrorist scenario, and it's important to really imagine that, to understand that, and make sure that the psychological impact of terrorism is, is fully present in every part of your plans, your policies, and your procedures. Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. Well, thanks, Holly. It's been great to speak to you again. Thank you.